So the fact that social justice warriors and other intellectual terrorists are in the minority doesn't negate the fact that they wield much of the power, right? So it keeps everybody in check because nobody wants to fall prey to their e-mob and their cancel culture and so on. So the reality is if everybody were to somehow trigger their ire, their own ire, their indignation, or what I call activate your inner honey badger, then the problem can be resolved very quickly. If you don't do that, then it's drip, drip, drip. It's death of the West by a thousand cuts. We will one day wake up without any of our freedoms. We won't recognize the society that we used to love. Political correctness has a chilling impact on our culture and our society. A silent majority of people disagree with what they see and hear on the news, but they decide to keep quiet, keep their opinions to themselves, and engage in a form of self-censorship. And who can blame them? They don't want to risk losing their job, losing their livelihood, losing friends or family members, all just over holding what a rabid mob considers to be the wrong opinion. My guest on today's episode of the True North Speaker Series has been living on the front lines of the culture war against the radical left for years. And he says that if we don't stand up for our core values, values like truth and freedom, that these values will soon be lost forever. Dr. Gad Saad is an author, public speaker, and professor at Concordia University in Montreal. He runs a popular YouTube channel called The Sad Truth and has been speaking about free speech and political correctness for years. His latest book, The Parasitic Mind, How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Sense, is coming out on October 6th. And in our conversation today, we talk about these infectious ideas, how they've been fomenting on university campuses for decades, and the best way to combat them. Dr. Sad, known lovingly online by his followers as the Gadfather, says it's time to treat this war as the serious threat that it is. Unleash your inner honey badger and start fighting back. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Let me know what you think in the comment section and please share this video with friends and like-minded compatriots. Don't forget to subscribe to True North. And if you'd like to support this podcast, please visit tnc.news slash donate. Dr. Gadsad, thank you so much. Welcome to the True North Speaker Series. It's such a pleasure to have you today. Thank you so much for having me. Very excited to be here. Well, we were just saying, we I, I met you once before in Montreal. We invited you to speak at a Civitas conference. And I remember that uh, presentation that you gave. You talked about the uh, concept of idea pathogens and the ostrich syndrome, which I see you've also incorporated into your latest book. So hopefully we can go through some of those concepts uh, at, at more length, because uh, I really want to talk about your new book that's coming out on October Six. But before we get there, Dr. Said, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up uh, being this sort of prominent uh, public intellectual? And so I've been a professor for 26 years. Uh, my area of scientific research is marrying evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology to study human behavior in general, but consumer behavior in particular. Uh, and so I've been within the ecosystem of the university, as I said, for, you know, almost three decades. And as I always recount, and as I do in chapter one of my forthcoming book, I faced two great wars in my life. The first war that I faced was in Lebanon as a child. Uh, I was in the Lebanese civil war and my family had to escape Lebanon uh, because we are Lebanese Jews. And so that afforded me 
an understanding of how ugly tribalism could be, how ugly identity politics is when pushed to the extreme. But I faced a second war in my life, and that war has been the war on reason, the, the war on science, the, the war on logic and common sense that I've been seeing with increasing frequency on the university campus. And so what compelled me to, as you said, become a public intellectual is number one, I, I'm sitting there in that war, seeing how people are no longer committed to logic, reason, common sense, and science. But also I'm someone who, just because of my you know, genetic makeup, I am very indignant of nonsense. And so it, when, when I see nonsense, I feel personally affronted. And so put all those together and voila, I'm in the public eye. Well, it's interesting that you compare those sort of two different, I guess, battles or wars, because, you know, in Lebanon, that that is a real war where, where people are actually being killed and murdered. When we think about identity politics and the sort of culture wars that happen in North America and the West, you know, they're, they're almost like kind of silly, like like identity politics, you just sort of roll your eyes on it. But but you've seen how those dangerous ideas can really manifest into something that's 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 truly dangerous. So maybe you could expand a little bit on, on how you compare those two, you know, sure. different kinds of battles or wars that you've lived through. So at the most fundamental level, uh, I like to use the language of war or violence. So for example, I talk about postmodernists being intellectual terrorists, right? So on 9-11, 19 committed zealots decided to fly planes onto buildings. Well, intellectual terrorists, postmodernists, they fly their planes of BS onto our edifices of reason. So at the most fundamental level, there's a murder of truth. Truth matters. So that's so that's at the grandest level. They are literally, or rather figuratively, raping truth, right? Uh, there is such a thing as male-female. There is such a thing as biology. There are universal truths that scientists wake up every day trying to uncover. Postmodernists say no, there are no objective truths. There's only, you know, you're, you're shackled by your subjective reality and subjective biases. So at the most fundamental level, there is literally an attack on, you know, all of the things that makes our societies enlightened, which is the pursuit of truth. We have the scientific method that allows us to educate what is true from what is false, right? This is why we don't rub crystals to resolve diabetes, right? Because we have a mechanism by to judge whether rubbing crystals works or not. So that's one issue. But then the, they are downstream effects of all of these, as you kindly pointed in the start of the intro about what I call idea pathogens. So identity politics is not just a silly thing that we're just, you know, indignant about. Identity politics has now entered every single hallway of academia. So we give professorships not as a function of whether you have merit, but as a function of whether you belong to certain classes of people who possess certain immut immutable traits. I mean, a few years ago, you would have thought that this is a grotesque racist idea. Today, it is cloaked in the robe of social justice. So it doesn't matter if my CV is 50 pages long. If I am not a, a person that has this and this marker, I'm simply put to the back of the queue. When you now apply for grants, you have to state what is your commitment to what I call the die religion, diversity, inclusion, and equity. Uh, if you don't write the correct things, you don't get a grant. I know of a 
natural sciences professor at a prominent university in Montreal who was denied a grant. He does important science. He was denied a grant because they didn't get past the fact that his die statement was sufficiently progressive. So the science didn't matter. The die religion superseded the science. So if I may just correct your earlier point, it's hardly silly, these, these squabbles, because the downstream effect is truly disastrous to an enlightened, scientific-oriented society. Oh, and, and I didn't mean to downplay it at all. I, I just think that you know, there's we, we, we have so much of this in our society. It's like politics has seeped into every aspect of our life. Like you just said, even in hard sciences, you now have to re repeat the correct mantras. And I think a lot of Canadians out there just sort of really roll their eyes at it. Like they, they, they don't see the problem as serious as what some of the alarmists on the left are, are, are proclaiming. And so when they're constantly being lectured about systemic racism or about you know, rape culture in our society or all of these sort of buzzwords that the left has created, they, they, they just don't, they've had enough of it. They, they kind of roll their eyes at it. So it's not that it's it's silly. It's just that we're we're so tired of it. And I, I, I wonder right. if, if you get that feeling as well, because you've been on the front lines fighting these, this fight for, for I, don't know, I don't know, years and years. And it seems like, you know, it's not going away. It's just getting worse and worse. I think it's getting worse and worse because it's exactly what you're saying. People are tired of it. They roll their eyes at it, at it but then they don't become as I say, soldiers of reason. There's no, you could roll your eyes from today until pigs fly. If you don't get engaged in fighting back against these idea pathogens, then the problem won't be resolved. The reality is, I think the great majority of people are anti all this nonsense, but they don't speak. And again, to, to come back to the analogy of the 9-11 hijackers, it didn't take 19 million people to bring down the Twin Towers. It didn't take 190,000 people. It required only 19 committed people. So the fact that social justice warriors and other intellectual terrorists are in the minority doesn't negate the fact that they wield much of the power, right? So it keeps everybody in check because nobody wants to fall prey to their e-mob and their cancel culture and so on. So the reality is if everybody were to somehow trigger their ire, their own ire, their indignation, or what I call activate your inner honey badger, then the problem can be resolved very quickly. If you don't do that, then it's drip, drip, drip. It's death of the West by a thousand cuts. We will one day wake up without any of our freedoms. We won't recognize the society that we used to love. And you can see that happening. I, I feel like Canadian society right now is just crippled with uh, political correctness, where we've had some very high profile people sort of get canceled or the, the cancel culture mob has gone after them and they've been removed from, from their positions. And it creates a chilling effect across society. What would your advice be for, for some of those Canadians that really don't agree with what's going on, but they also don't find themselves in a position where they can really speak out against it? So there are several ways that I can answer this. And by the way, forgive the shameless plug, but in chapter eight, my last chapter of the book, I exactly address your question, which is I, the chapter is titled Call to Action, because it, it's insufficient to explain the problem. You also have to offer a vaccine, a, a set of solutions, an inoculation, right? So I mentioned earlier, you know, activate your inner honey badger. But let's talk about the one you mentioned, uh, you know, I might lose friends. So here, I actually addressed this one in the book. So I argue that friendships are anti-fragile, so to, to, to use the term of Nassim Taleb, my, my good friend. So 
anti-fragility is something that you want in a system. In other words, you need to shock the system and it not break for it to be a strong system, right? If, if it is very brittle and if I just go boo and it breaks, then that's not a good system. Well, I argue that friendships, true friendships, should be anti-fragile, which means what? Candace and I, if we're good friends, we could sit down around the table, disagree on Justin Trudeau or Donald Trump or whatever else we're debating and walk away from that conversation without any threat to our friendship. If we can't do that, then Candace is not a friend that I wish to have around in my inner circle. She's not worthy of the title of my friend. So one of the ways that you get around that sort of cowardice of I'm going to lose friend is to recognize that it's better to be accompanied by a few strong, strong friends, loyal friends with whom I could have these heated exchanges than to be surrounded by a bunch of castrated cowards. Uh, another one that I often hear is, you know, who am I to judge? Uh, you know, I'm, you know, I don't want to judge another culture. I don't want to judge another thing. If they want to believe in BLM, no, judge. Okay. Now, as long as your judging is rooted in a set of coherent principles, we judge all the time. When I'm deciding who to marry, I judge different candidates. I belong to the society of judgment and decision-making as a behavioral scientist. So judging is an inherent part of human nature. I think oftentimes what happens is people think back of the sort of the religious edict, you know, don't judge others lest you be judged. In that case, what the religious edict is talking about is moral hypocrisy, right? Don't judge others for doing something and then you turn around, do it yourself. It's in that sense we mean don't judge others, right? Don't throw stones in a glass house and so on. But the idea that I shouldn't judge others because they are imbeciles, cretins, intellectual terrorists, no, I spend all day judging people and I expect others to judge me. It's called being human. Well, absolutely. But Dr. Saad, what, what about if you're in a position where you worry about your job? I mean, we've seen a lot of people, high profile people lose, you know, I'll give you an example, Stockwell Day, he went on CBC Power and Politics, said that he didn't think that Canada was a systemically racist country, uh, compared racist bullying that some kids might get uh, to, to the bullying that he received uh, because of the way he looked or the fact that he wore glasses. And that was enough. He, he got fired from the CBC or he forced to resign, forced to resign from his prestigious uh, legal law firm that he was affiliated with. And I, I think that th those kind of things have a really chilling effect that you worry, OK, if I, I write something on Facebook that gets interpreted the wrong way, I could lose my job, which has a really deep impact on your ability to provide for your family and, and, and your entire life. So so what, what about, you know, positions that it's not just friendship, but it's actually your livelihood? Yeah, so I also talk about this in the book. Look, people often say, oh, but, you know, Professor Saad, you're, uh, you're, you have tenure. Well, first of all, tenure is not this great cloak that protects you from all ill consequences. I've had to suffer quite serious consequences in academia despite being tenured. And I don't need to get into all the details, but I can assure you it's not an easy ride to be who I am from within the venomous pit of academia. Uh, I've received probably more death threats than anyone who is watching this show has hairs on their heads. I used to walk in to campus having to check in with security who would accompany to my classroom and lock the door so that if a student leaves and they want to come back in, it is they can't come back in without me opening the door. The 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 my university accompanied me to the Montreal police for us to file a police report because of the death threats 
that I was receiving. Tenure did not protect me from that. When I would walk into the campus, this was several years ago, luckily this has stopped, but in 2017, when I would walk into campus, my wife would drop me. I would literally have, and I've never experienced anxiety before in the true sense of the term. I would go to my class and then I would rush back to my to for my wife to pick me up. And I would literally let go a deep breath of a sigh of relief that I've survived another week because I didn't know whether whomever is sending me the death threats is just a quack who's trying to intimidate or whether they're really gonna do it or not. So we all have a you know cross to bear, some of us more, some of us less. Uh, the reality, though, is that if you look at the 18-year-olds who went, who landed on the beaches of Normandy so that you and I can have this conversation today, they didn't receive a guarantee that they would be protected. They, they, they were likely to lose a lot more than their jobs. And yet they said, yeah, yeah, sign me up. I'll go land on the beaches of Normandy. And they were going to be mowed down like little mosquitoes by the Germans. So... I'm not uh, minimizing the real threats that people face, and I'm not suggesting that we be reckless martyrs, but everybody has a potential cost to bear. The problem is that each person has exactly the same logic as what you're saying. You know, let let Gat Saad and other courageous guys carry the burden for me. You know, I have a job and I've got little kids. Guess what? I have little kids too. And I have a heart and I have a brain and I get panicky when I see six suspicious looking guys coming towards me because I don't know if they were the ones who sent me the 18,000th death threat, but I do it because not doing it would make me feel as though I'm a cowardly fraud. So each person has to calculate their own calculus of the trade-offs of costs and benefits. But it is simply uh, cowardly to say, I stand to lose. In a war, everybody stands to lose, but we expect courageous people to stand up. That's it. And I, I wonder, though, like, at what point do you feel like that call to action is there? Because, you know, when when the, the Second World War was going on, we saw the threat. We knew what Hitler was. We knew that Nazis were expanding all across Europe. But I think that the, it was a much more obvious idea that, that the society was at war. Whereas, Gad, you know, today you look around and, you know, life is pretty good. People are pretty comfortable. A lot of the sort of culture wars play out online. And so it doesn't really feel real. Now, obviously, over the summer, we've seen very violent riots. We've seen gun battles. We've seen a, a lot of this sort of pent up anger that, that, that ex we experience online uh, boil over and happen in real life. So, you know, how, how do we know when it when it when it's time, you know, for us to, you know, metaphorically go to the beaches of Normandy? I mean, do, do you think that's happening now? Do you think that's been happening for the past two years? Do you think that may happen in the next five years? Where are we here? Right. So for many, many years, I've been warning, not hyperbolically, literally, that in 10, 20, 50, 100 years, if we don't change course, we will have exactly the same reality as I escaped in Lebanon. And people said, oh, but aren't you exaggerating, Professor? And now we see the violence, right? What, what protects the West is a set of values that is truly unique in our sort of collective history, right? There is something unique about the system. It's an anomaly what the West has given us for the number of years that it's given us. Much of our history is not laden with peace and, and love and freedom, right? Much of our history is paved in, in rivers of blood. So 
some of us are either cursed or, or, or endowed with the capacity to look at patterns and predict what's going to come in the future. Not because we are prophets, not because we are Cassandras, modern day Cassandras, but because, first of all, we've seen what happens in societies where you lose those protective values, but also because some of us are able to detect patterns and take them to their logical conclusion. So, the problem, as you correctly said, is the old famous parable of the boiling frog, right? If you put the frog and you only increase the heat by a bit, by below a just noticeable difference, it, does, it doesn't realize that it's being boiled, right? Uh, so that parable is really apt here because it exactly speaks to what you're saying. Well, yeah, maybe there is a bit of problem, but, you know, I'm busy this week, you know, with my daughter's graduation. And, I, yeah, I don't have time for this culture war. The reality, though, it's drip, 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 right? You don't see it in one year. You don't see it in five years. But as someone now who's been long enough in academia for 26 years, I warned about every single one. Of, as a matter of fact, my satire, I often joke, but I'm being serious, that my satire is prophetic. The reason why my satire is prophetic, because I take a current position and then I apply, if you like, an extrapolation to some future date I satirize that extreme condition and then I put my finger, my hands like this and I wait for reality to catch up to my satire. So listen to the proverbial canary in the cold mines who, who is warning you. Don't brush it off as hyperbolic talk. Look, my, my child right now, one of my children has a, a teacher who has BLM as a sign you know, on her avatar, right? There are two things that one can do now. Say, well, hey, so what? You know, I, I I love black people. I want to support black people. What's wrong with that? But that would be a very facile understanding of BLM. BLM is a political organization that has certain positions that either I agree with or disagree with. But irrespective of that, it shouldn't be my teacher's, my, my child's teacher who is putting it as a political position, right? So I have two choices. I could either be quiet or I could contact nicely, politely, quietly, behind closed doors, the principal and say, hey, I don't think this is appropriate for... So this is what I mean by there are many ways by which you can get involved. Not everybody has my platform, not everybody has my position, but each of us has some sphere of influence from which they can engage their engagement. Don't sit idly. Don't be a coward. Don't diffuse the responsibility onto others. You have a voice, use it. Excellent. Well, let's let's get into your book a little bit more, Professor Said, because I, th I think it's a really important book. I, I admit I haven't read it yet because we sent, set this interview up pretty fast and uh, <laughs> the book doesn't come out until October 6th. So uh, you know, as I was researching the book, I'm really excited to read it. So so hopefully you can help uh, you know, explain and, and, and talk about what, what, what's, what it's all about. But the book is called The Parasitic Mind, How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Sense. Uh, that, that is a great title. And, and it's so true because, uh, you know, the, the least common thing in our society right now, it feels, is common sense, uh, the thing that, that's supposed to drive us all. But maybe you can tell us a little bit about what uh, some examples are of these infectious ideas that are killing sure. common sense. So perhaps I could start off with the analogy from the animal kingdom. So uh, the, the way I thought about, you know, using idea pathogens and parasites, parasitic mind, is if you think of parasites in nature, parasites can inf infect a host in many organs. A tapeworm can go into your intestines. Uh, but neuroparasites are parasites that specifically seek 
an organism's brain, their brain parasites, brain worms. So the classic example that some of your viewers might know, and that's why I'm going to use it, Toxoplasma gondii is a brain parasite that can inflict actually humans, but the classic example is uh, when it infects the uh, brain of a mouse, the mouse loses its innate fear of cats and it actually becomes sexually attracted to the cat's urine, which is not a good thing for a mouse to exhibit. Uh, or, yeah, or you could have, for example, a type of brain worm that uh, parasitizes the brains of ungulates, deer, moose, elk. And so when they are parasitized by this brain worm, they start engaging in what's called circling behavior. They kind of bob their head up and down and they, they can't extricate themselves from this, you know, motor pattern. So even if the looming predators are coming, they're stuck in this pattern, right? So, so parasites can cause animals to engage in behaviors that are maladaptive to them, but adaptive to the reproductive cycle of the parasite. And so... I said, aha, as someone who is an evolutionary psychologist, so I study oftentimes comparison with cross species, I said, aha, I'm going to use that example to argue that human beings could be not only parasitized by actual physical brain worms in the same way that the, the, the mouse can, but we can be regrettably parasitized by a completely other class of brain worms, which I called idea pathogens. So in this case, these are terrible ideas that instead of causing us to go around in a circling behavior, they lead us to the abyss of infinite lunacy quietly, right? In a docile manner. So then the, so as any good epidemiologist would do, I then say, okay, well, where did this infestation begin? So if we are studying uh, the origins of the COVID-19 virus, well, we can also study where do these idea pathogens come from? And I'll, I'll give examples of idea pathogens in a second. And I argue uh, that all of these dreadful idea pathogens, regrettably, I say, because I'm a professor, all come from the university ecosystem. It takes intellectuals to come up with really uniquely dumb ideas, right? So, so now that I've kind of set up the parasitological model, the epidemiological model, what are some examples of idea pathogens? So the, the, the granddaddy of all idea pathogens, because it literally negates truth, is, as I mentioned earlier, postmodernism. Postmodernism is the granddaddy of idea pathogens because it literally removes our ability for sense-making, right? There is no point in me waking up in the morning as a behavioral scientist thinking that there might be some regularities that I could study in the world if there are no objective truths. It's my truth. It's subjective truth. Who are you to judge my truth and so on, right? So uh, postmodernism is intellectual terrorism. Now, postmodernism then leads to all sorts of other idea pathogens. So for example, uh, militant feminism is itself an idea pathogen, not because I don't support equity feminism, which basically says that men and women should be equal under the law. Any enlightened person would agree with that. But militant feminism goes much beyond that. It rejects the possibility that there are evolutionary-based sex differences. So a lot of times I draw ire from people because I'm an evolutionary psychologist because evolutionary psychologists are racist, are sexist. Nothing could be further from the truth. All that evolutionary psychologists are doing is study the evolutionary mechanisms that led to the a human mind, right? So trans activism is another idea pathogen. Now that doesn't mean that transgender people don't exist. It doesn't mean that we should not fight against bigotry against transgender people. Uh, when it comes to that, I'm about as liberal as, as they can come. But 
in the pursuit of social justice towards transgender people, I don't have to murder truth. I don't have to argue that it is not true that a 270 pound guy who's six foot four can suddenly change his gender, become a trans woman, and now you are transphobic if you don't allow him to compete against a hundred pound woman because bruh, it's transphobic to presume that there are any biological differences between these two uh, individuals, right? So. What happens with idea pathogens in many cases, well, in all cases, is that they share one thing in common. They all are completely committed to the rejection of reality. It frees us from the shackles of reality. You put trans, it frees me from the shackles of my biology and my genitalia. You put postmodernism, it frees me from the possibility of a universal truth. So all of these idea pathogens, cultural relativism, trans activism, militant uh, feminism, identity politics, the culture of perpetual offense, right? Uh, feeling being higher than thinking. All of these various strands of idea pathogens, when put together, result in truly halluc hallucinatory positions. And they are starting to tear our society apart. Well, one of the things that I, I noticed about all these different uh, idea pathogens that you mentioned is that at the very basic level, they have something going for them. Like like the idea of uh, postmodernism. It's like, I remember when I was in university, the whole idea is that you have to develop critical thinking. So it's important to question things. But the problem with postmodernists is that they question everything. They pull, they pull apart the very foundation until there's nothing left and, and you don't have anything. And it's the same with feminism. It's like, you know, there, there's been a history of, of women being sort of marginalized, not, not being allowed to vote, not being full citizens, not being able to own property, those kind of things. It's like, yeah, it's important that we fight so that women have equal, like you said, equal rights under the law. It, it's just that at a certain point, you know, it, it goes from fighting an injustice that we can all more or less agree with, uh, then they go overboard and, and they take it to, to keep going and going and going to its logical conclusion where it starts to sort of tear everything apart. So I, I wonder, uh, how, how do you stop that process from happening? How do, you, how do you say, like, at what point do you say, you know, yes, transgender people need to be protected and we should treat them with dignity and we should make sure that they're physically safe uh, to, you know, crossing that line to say, you know, now we're going to allow children and, and very young people to take pills to, to alter their entire chemistry of their body and, and have long-term uh, biological effects or we're going to allow you know, boys to play sports, physical sports with girls, just because they say that they identify as a woman and, and now there's no such thing as gender whatsoever. At, at what point has it gone too far and how do we stop it at that at that point? Well, it, it's, it's gone too far whenever in the pursuit of social justice in the, in the good sense of the term, uh, we in any way murder an, a millimeter of truth, right? In other words, so in, in, in the first chapter of my book, I talk about what are the, the two fundamental ideals that drive my life. And I argue that they are truth and uh, freedom, right? Uh, in other words, there's, there's no way for me to do what I do if I don't. And when I say freedom, by the way, I don't mean just freedom of speech. I mean, so, for example, I give examples in my book of how when I used to be a soccer player, I used to play the number 10 position, which is the playmaker position. That allows me to kind of freely move around the field looking for spaces to exploit. When a coach would put a 
positional restriction on me. You're going to play today, Gad, more on the left side of midfield and you're going to track back this guy. My brain would explode because it would remove my capacity to be free, right? Uh, if you tell me publish in only these types of journals because you are housed in a business school, no, I want to publish in medicine and in economics and in psychology and in business. I don't care. I just pursue interesting problems. So the pursuit of freedom is a fundamental driver for me. The pursuit of truth, the defense of truth is fundamental for me. So to answer your question, the, the point at which we say no is when in the pursuit of laudable goals, like protecting transgender people, having equal rights for all people, we start being consequentialist in our ethics. What do I mean by that? When, when you have truth, you could be one of two types of uh, truth seeker. You could be what's called a deontological person. It is always wrong to lie. That is a deontological position. A consequentialist position would be, it is okay to lie if the consequences are to protect your feelings, right? So one, and the reality is, it's not that we should always be deontologically minded, it's that depending on the context, it may, if your spouse tells you, do I look horrible and fat in those genes, and you wanna have a long lasting marriage, maybe you wanna be consequentialist and say, no, no spouse, you look gorgeous, right? So it's, I'm not suggesting that you always have to be deontological, but when we're dealing with grand topics of societal importance, we, we should never be consequentialist about the truth, right? I can, I can completely walk and chew gum at the same time. I could defend the rights of women whilst accepting that there are innate sex differences. I could defend the rights of transgender people whilst saying that 270 pound guy that's 300 pounds with a nine inch penis is not a woman. That should not cause me to be canceled for saying something that is as obvious as a two-year-old recognizing this. So this is what I mean. Pursue justice, pursue truly liberal ideals, but never give up one inch of truth. Absolutely. So I guess that would be chapter three of your book, which is called Non-Negotiable Elements of a Free and Modern Society. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I want to talk about chapter four because uh, the title is anti-science, anti-reason, and illiberal movements. And you know, there's so many times. Uh, I'll give you just an example. In Canada, you know, the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his party are called the Liberal Party, but you know, the, the ideas that they pursue and, the, and the, the the ideas they put forward are hardly liberal. They don't they don't live up to that ideal of small L classical liberalism. And we see we, we see them sort of say, you know, we're the party of science. And if you're a conservative, you're anti-science. And we're starting to see this a little bit in the U.S. as well. I know you've been critical of Joe Biden uh, for, for saying that, that, that he's he's the scientific. Uh, he's a party of science. And if you believe in science, you're going to vote Democrat. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about this chapter and how, how sort of politicians manipulate some of those words. Sure. Uh, so first, I'll address this left, right and science denialism thing. It is absolutely untrue that, you know, the right are the science deniers and the left are the pro-science folks. Uh, the reality is both engage in science denialism as a function of whether the particular scientific truth, you know, clashes with their ideological positions. So it is much more likely that a Republican senator from the South, to be stereotypical, might reject evolution because of some evangelical you know, belief, but it is equally true that when it comes to evolutionary psychology, 
the application of evolutionary principles to the study of the human mind, say sex differences, then it becomes much more the left who become grotesque anti-science folks, right? Now, as someone who inhabits the ecosystem of the university, all of the idea pathogens that I speak of, all of which are perfectly anti-scientific, they all stem from the left. So it's not that I am a pro-right guy and an anti-left guy. It's because the ecosystem that I inhabit is one where it is completely driven, driven by leftist science denialism. That would be like arguing that if I am a physician that treats diabetes, you come to me and say, but doc, why don't you ever talk about melanoma? Well, because I don't specialize in melanoma. doesn't mean that melanoma is not important, but I treat diabetes. That's my specialty. So the fact that I critique the left as science deniers doesn't at all mean that the right doesn't do it. So that's number one. You're exactly right about so-called the liberal party. And that's why I've got illiberal in that chapter heading, because a lot of the positions that the Democrats and the left and the liberals currently espouse could not be any more illiberal. I mean, literally, you could not define an idea pathogen that is more illiberal than some of the platforms that they take. So let's go back, for example, to the die religion, diversity, inclusion, and, and equity. And, and that will speak to some of the stuff that, that I discuss about anti-science and so on. So I talk about, for example, the indigenization of the Canadian campuses, right? Well, indigenization happens in many forms. So indigenization could be that at a, a ceremony, say graduating ceremony, you first have to start off by self-flagellating publicly that you are stealers of the land and you're all evil who are sitting in this thing. And then we go on with the ceremony. Well, first I argue that that's really grotesque because the, the students who are there, where it is their moment to shine, have to first begin by having the cloak of intergenerational guilt placed on them. That's not a progressive thing. That is a grotesque thing. You couldn't imagine something with lesser nobility than to impose that collective guilt on them. This doesn't mean that indigenous people were not mistreated, but it means that Joe Blow should not have to experience it right now when he's graduating with his commerce degree. So that's at one level where we see this kind of nonsense. Let's take it at another level. The peer review process in science is fundamental to educating what is correct or not. We put a paper through the peer review, your colleagues break it apart every syllable, and then eventually through multiple rounds of revision, we can then publish this paper as something that's been vetted. Well, there is a indigenous professor at University of British Columbia who several years ago, when she didn't get tenure, filed a complaint with the Human Rights Tribunal, arguing that this process of having to write things down by publishing them was an affront to her oral tradition history as an indigenous person. Well, you know who else has oral traditions? Jewish people for much longer, for 5,000 years. So I should have told all those Jewish Nobel Prize winners to never write things down because brah, oral tradition. So that's second level. Third level, uh, when we adjudicate any controversy in science, we use the scientific method. There is no alternate way of knowing. So for example, when we say indigenous way of knowing, it is perfectly fair to say that if you're going to study something in the great north, 
to the extent that those folks have lived in that land for thousands of years, they may have unique knowledge about the flora and fauna of that land that we should be engaging with. So that's perfectly fine. So specific domain, specific knowledge, that is indigenous knowledge, but there isn't an indigenous way of knowing that is different from the scientific method. I can't pray to my ancestors to better understand environmental impact that is different from the scientific method. But guess what? The Quebec minister of, I think, environment was placed in very hot waters a few years ago because when they were talking about environmental impact studies and he said, well, what do you mean indigenous way? Don't we use the scientific method to decide that? He was basically feather and tarred as you know, a Nazi. So no, there is no Lebanese Jewish way of knowing or really good looking people way of knowing or indigenous way of knowing. There's just the scientific method. The scientific method is what liberates us from the shackles of our unique identities. It's what allows all of us to meet in a common arena and use an incredibly powerful framework free of biases, if it is practiced properly, to adjudicate different ideas. So this is one example of what I talk about, anti-scientific ideas. There is no unique ways of knowing. There's the scientific method, and that's it. Well, it's interesting. It reminds me a couple of years ago, Professor, there was a Black Lives Matter protest in Toronto, and one of the speakers called Justin Trudeau a white supremacist. And it was kind of shocking because, you know, to us, Justin Trudeau is this sort of loopy leftist that is, you know, loving of all people or whatever. And hearing someone on the far, far left call a left wing politician white supremacist just didn't really make sense. But over the past few years, we've seen this new kind of shifting definition of words. So so what used to be a racist, a racist used to be, you know, someone who judged or, or, or believed in inferiority or inferiority uh, based on race, whereas now it's someone who, I guess, opposes immigration or someone who is not part of the woke left, someone who fights back against Black Lives Matter. You know, the, the term racist can apply to just about anyone. Um, and this is the same thing with white supremacy. It's sort of what you're talking about, that they believe that, you know, just the very idea of scientific method is a white supremacist idea. And we've sort of seen that that creep up um, more and more over the past few years, where now you're, you're talking about how it's it's sort of mainstream in, in society. So how can we how can we push back against that? Well, we, in many ways you could push. I mean, if you're in my position, you do it in the way that I'm doing it. But if you're a if you're a parent and you see your kid learning stuff that is insanely, you know, grotesque, if not an affront to truth, you say, hey, wait a minute. No, I will not be quiet. And again, as you said, the problem is that most people simply can't activate their inner honey badger because regrettably, the eighth deadly sin, which didn't make it into the list of seven deadly sins, is cowardice, right? Most people say, look, I mean, I've got enough stress in my life. I don't want to go and meet the principal who, who I'm probably going to have a heated exchange with. So let me be quiet. Well, as you're being quiet, your child is being slowly parasitized by these idea pathogens so that three years down the line, eight years down the line, they do wake up with their blue hair in the feminist glaciology course at their university because you know you can't study ice formation without recognizing that it's patriarchal even ice has patriarchal connotation by the way i'm not being satirical there literally is a paper on feminist glaciology right there's a section in the book where i talk about all of the different you know feminist and fill in the blank there's feminist physics feminist mathematics i mean i studied mathematics 
I thought what mathematics does is it offers us axioms that couldn't be any freer from bias, precisely because they're axiomatic, they are self-contained process. No, 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 even mathematics can be enriched by a feminist perspective. So you can either tackle the problem when you see your child in grade three being parasitized by this BS, or you can wait till they have red and blue hair when they're 22. And again, of course, I'm being sat satirical and facetious when I say this, but the reality is that that's the progression. So, you know, there isn't a singular recipe for how everybody should engage. You have to find what is your sphere of influence and simply not walk away from a fight. So it could be somebody posts something on Facebook who's a friend of yours and you think that you disagree with, engage them publicly, politely. I'm not saying you have to be an ass. I'm not saying you have to be impolite, but don't constantly walk away from possible teachable moments because you're afraid to judge, you're afraid to confront. Everybody has influence. It literally is a trench, street to street battle of ideas, and we all have a voice, so just get engaged. Well, absolutely. I mean, there's so many examples that, that I know of. I have a friend, uh, I, I have a friend lives in Palo Alto, which is like a very kind of liberal left-wing city in California. And basically at her brother's son's school, it's a small private school. And at this point, more than half the students in this uh, child's class, I think he's like 12 or 13 years old, uh, more than half the students now identify as, as being transgender or part of the LGBT community in some way. And I think that terrifies a lot of parents because you know, they don't want to be seen as bigoted. They don't want to be seen as being uh, not understanding of, of you know, the, 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 what, what kids are going through and that kind of thing. But obviously when you have that, that kind of ratio, uh, there's something political happening in the school. And like you said, if you don't stand up against it now, I mean, what, what, what's going to happen when, when the child gets to, to university or, you know, when they get older, it, it can be pretty, pretty terrifying. Dr. Said, I feel like these these problems have been present on university campuses for years and years. We all know the story of Jordan Peterson and how he sort of stood up and fought back and, and had this huge sort of mob of hatred. But he was ringing the alarm bell. You've been ringing the alarm bell for years and years. And I, I feel like this is maybe the first time we start to see these ideas spill out into society. So it's not just university campuses anymore. It's corporations, it's newspapers, it's media companies, it's political parties. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about the origin of how, how this started on campus and, and, and then how, how it's now spreading into society. Yeah, so it, it started with a, a confluence of idea pathogens. So, for example, cultural relativism is a idea that first developed uh, you know, 100, almost 100 years ago by Franz Boas, who was an anthropologist who a cultural anthropologist who wanted to really remove the influence of biology in understanding human phenomena. And the reason originally started as a quote noble reason, which is that at, at, at various points in history, people have usurped evolutionary ideas to their nefarious political pursuits. So uh, in the 1930s and 40s, the, the Nazis said, hey, there's a Darwinian natural struggle between the races. We won. So who cares if we kill those lower folks? Uh, British class social elitists 
much earlier had said, hey, there's a struggle between the classes. And if the lower classes lose out, so who cares if they don't get educated and they don't get health care? Hey, that's a natural Darwinian struggle. It's called social Darwinism. Well, none of these ideas have anything to do with Darwinian theory. Uh, it's not as though they, they are a natural you know, uh, consequence of Darwinian theory. But all of these Cretans usurp these ideas. So a bunch of anthropologists, under the guise of trying to stop these from happening in the future, created a new edifice of knowledge where you completely reject that there are any human universals. So, for example, Franz Boas' eventual student, Margaret Mead, who was a committed uh, cultural anthropologist, came up with the idea that, you know, there are some folks in some exotic island where their sexual behaviors are exactly opposite to the typical pattern. Men are chaste and virginal and no, 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 I don't want to have sex. And it is the women that run after him. And that was an example that even when it comes to sexual behavior, there are no universal. Well, guess what? That whole study and all that research was utter bull complete nonsense. There's a book that came out called The Faithful Hoaxing of Margaret Reed, but she was so desperate to believe in the idea that there are no human universals. There's no possibility that there's a biological set of imperatives that define our common shared humanity that she was parasitized by that idea pathogen. So different idea pathogens on campuses arose for different reasons, but they each did their part in destroying the edifice of truth. So that 40, 50, 60, 70 years later, we end up with women who have nine inch penises. Boys too can menstruate. Again, me stating that does not re reject or negate or make light of the fact that transgenderism is a real issue and these people should exist in complete freedom of bigotry. So that's the problem is that once you are permissive to allow a small chip to the edifice of truth, it's a domino effect. So you have to be engaged. If you see your child being taught white fragility, you say, oh, no, no, no. You're not going to teach my child that they have to feel bad because they have a certain skin you. No way. And if enough people do it, if enough people activate, when I say activate your inner honey badger, let me explain the analogy uh, clearly or the metaphor. So, uh, a honey badger is the size of a small dog. It could be attacked by six. You can go on, on YouTube and see one honey badger fending off six lions, right? Why? Because once you annoy it, it goes berserk. It is so ferocious that the lions say, uh, yeah, I don't want to deal with that, right? So how what does it mean to be to activate your inner honey badger? It means that if you attack my sense of dignity, my sense of truth, I lose it. Now, lose it doesn't mean I become violent, but that means if you think with your blue hair, you're going to come at me being indignant, I'm going to match you a hundredfold with my indignation. Why? Because I could defend my principles. I mean, look, even how I'm speaking now, I'm the warmest and fuzziest guy. But if you piss me off, I'm coming for you. Right. So I understand that people have different personalities. But if you are going to defend your child from a pedophile, right? You should also defend your child from idea pathogens. Both are dangerous to a child. The pedophile is dangerous to your child in one way, and having your child grow up hating himself or herself and his or her culture and his or her skin color, that too is horrific. So be indignant. Fight for true principles. Well, amen to that, Dr. Saad. I think that 
uh, so, you know, so many people get frustrated. They see things happening online and, you know, th that's how they feel inside, but they don't really have the courage. And so, you know, it's so important uh, books like yours and people like you who are sort of out there day in, day out, living and fighting these culture wars, uh, you know, serve as, as an example, because just to bring it back to, to the idea of common sense, you know, it's like they can sit there and tell you that there's no difference between men and women. But, you know, we all have our lived experiences. We all see it every day. I mean, I have a 18 month old son and I can tell you with no uh, no bit of uncertainty that that the preferences that he's shown since he was a very little boy uh, were, were, were masculine. You know, he, he likes to play with balls. He likes to play with sticks. He, he likes to throw rocks. Very different than his his cousin who, you know, she, she likes to have dolls. She likes to play with like, you know, hug things. And, and it's, it's just very different. You can see it in, in small, small children before they're even socialized. So, so to sit there and say, you know, the, the, the reason that, that, that boys play with trucks and rocks and balls is because of the way they're socialized. It's like, well, you know, anyone who's ever had kids knows that that's just not true. And, and, and I think that that, you know, that's just one example of, of, of millions that common sense is being uh, fought against. And we're told basically to, uh, you know, to uh, disbelieve our, our lying eyes, basically. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought up the example of toys. I don't know if that's because you're familiar with some of my work on toy preferences or it was just serendipitous. But in Chapter 7, where I talk about how to seek truth, I, I argue that we can build an unassailable argument by using uh, what I call uh, nomological networks of cumulative evidence. It's, it's, it's a lot of fancy words, so let me break it down. And I will okay. use the example of toy preferences to explain it. So let's suppose I want to prove to you that toy preferences are not socially constructed. By the way, social constructivism is another one of the idea pathogens that I discuss in the book. Social constructivism is the idea that we are born empty slate with equal potentiality, and it's only you know evil socialization that makes us go into one trajectory or another. So toy preferences, the typical social science argument is that toy preferences is a manifestation of gender socialization. We teach little Johnny to play rough and tumble with trucks and balls and, and sticks. And we teach little Linda to play uh, with, with nurturance with dolls. And that starts a cascade of gender role specialization. And so if I wanna actually prove to you that no, there are sex-specific toy preferences that are not due to social constructivism. How would I go about doing that? So I would build a nomological network of cumulative evidence. What does that mean? It means that I would say to myself, what would be the evidence that I would need to amass stemming from different time periods, different cultures, different disciplines, different methodologies, different everything you could imagine such that it becomes impossible for you to negate the tsunami of evidence that I'm drowning you in. And so let me just give you a few. I won't build the whole network, but let me give you a few. You touched on the fact that if you take children who are in the pre-socialization stage, they already exhibit those preferences. Well, those studies have actually been done. This is how we establish that something is not due to socialization. We go to developmental psychologists and we elicit those preferences from children who could, by definition, didn't have the cognitive ability to yet be socialized. So already that would be enough to, you know, offer a death blow to the social constructivist argument. But let me give you a few more. You could take different species. So you could take vervet monkeys, 
you could take rhesus monkeys, you could take chimpanzees, and you could show that the infants in those species exhibit the same sex-specific preferences as human infants. Well, to argue that that's due to the sexist patriarchy would be a bit of a tough sell, unless you're arguing that the sexist patriarchy affects little mama vervet monkey and little papa vervet monkey. So now I've used data from developmental psychology and from comparative psychology. Comparative psychology means across different species to, to, to demonstrate that there is something that is beyond social constructivism when it comes to toy preferences. Let me give one or two other ones. You could take little girls who suffer from congenital adrenal hyperplasia which is an endocrinological disorder that masculinizes little girls. They, they become masculinized in their morphology. They become masculinized in their behaviors. Well, little girls who suffer from congenital adrenal hyperplasia are more likely to exhibit male boy-based preferences. So this is suggesting that there is a hormonal signature, biological signature to toy preferences. Now I could provide you with many, many other such evidence when put together it becomes impossible for you to argue against me. You could take your best shot, but I've drowned you. So one of the things that I argue in chapter seven, or well, the main thing that I argue in chapter seven, is that when you're engaging in debates, don't be hysterical. Don't let your emotional affective system kick in. Simply say to yourself, what would I need to provide as evidence to Candace so that I could at least put a chip, if not trash, her ideological walls. And I do this exercise not just for evolutionary-based arguments. So in the book, for example, I use that epistemological tool to answer the question, is Islam peaceful or not? I don't have to engage in hysteria. I don't have to ask Justin Trudeau or George Bush or Barack Obama what he is going to tell me that Islam is. Can I build a nomological network that completely establishes whether Islam is peaceful or not? I'll leave it for your viewers to read the book to decide what the answer is. But in other words, there is a time when you need to engage your affective system, your feelings, and there's a time to engage your uh, cognitive system. Uh, one last thing I know, I hope I'm not being too long-winded. Uh, one should also have epistemic humility, meaning to know what you know and know what you don't know. When I know something and I'm being interviewed on a show like yours, I will speak with all of the swagger of someone who knows what they're talking about. But if you were to ask me now, by the way, Professor Saad, what about the legalization of marijuana under Justin Trudeau? What are the net position on that? I frankly don't know the answer to that. I haven't been built my own internal nomological network to answer that. So I would be the first to say, you know what? I simply don't know enough about this. So part of being a truly pious person in an intellectual sense is to know what you know and know what you don't know. Well, that's a very good advice. And I, I think humility is something that we should all uh, work towards. And also, uh, you know, gratitude is, is another uh, area where people just don't really you know show the gratitude so uh, you know a lot of the, the the indigenous land ceremony thing that you talked about earlier it's like instead of acknowledging that we live in this tremendous society and that western civilization has brought so much good to the world and and so much order and peace and freedom and and all these things you know we, we can only look at the negative things so so we focus on the things that 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 we need to improve upon or that pull our society apart and i think that 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 too is is part of the problem. 
Uh, well, I'll just I'll just ask you a, f a final question because you know you keep bringing it back to the universities as sort of the origin of these dangerous idea pathogens, and you are a university professor. You've seen it un unfold. I, I think a lot of parents sort of worry about sending their children to university. They worry about what kind of ideas they'll get, what what the culture will do to them. Like you say, you, you know, you can't help but not uh, turn into a, sort of a blue-haired feminist in, in some of these departments. I know my own experience at university was that most students were kind of tuned out and they didn't really care. They didn't really listen to their professors. And it was really kind of hard to understand and grasp all the concepts they were trying to, to teach us because the, the very nature of postmodernism is that it's really confusing and it doesn't, it doesn't really lead you anywhere. It doesn't provide any good in your life. You just kind of are left feeling lost basically. So you, you have children yourself. Uh, I imagine that you would encourage them to go to university, but you know, is is there an alternative? Is there is there a school in Canada that's particularly better or better than other ones, or that's good? What what is your advice to parents right. uh, about sending their kids to universities? Look, look, obviously, I'm someone who is very committed to education. Uh, universities are the great purveyors of knowledge, but also the great purveyors of BS. That's the that's the the irony. So what I would suggest is, well, number one, of course, you don't have to be educated. You don't only have to go to university. We now have, you can go on YouTube and get much better education than what you could have imagined ever. You, you want to study evolutionary psychology? Well, there are clips of every great evolutionary psychologist that you could ever imagine. And that's going to be much better than any evolutionary psychology course you take at the university setting. So, so lifelong learning is something that we should all aspire to pursue. I always tell the story that when I walk into my study where I'm sitting right now talking to you, there are probably over 200 books in my own personal library that I've yet to read. And I often am filled with angst as to when am I gonna get to reading? There's all this great knowledge that I've yet to learn, and I would probably place myself on the higher end of people who know things, and yet I am humbled by how little I know and how much more there is for me to know. So the, the, the instinct to always want to learn more does not need to only come from universities, but to, to come to your the crux of your main question, I can't say this university is more parasitized by the blue-haired folks than this university, but what I can say is that you need to explain to your children that they should go to university for a growth of their spirit. And I don't mean that in the in the you know religious sense, but knowledge is truly liberating. It can take us to all sorts of wonderful landscapes. And I don't mean to imply that your education should only be practical or only be, you know, only do natural sciences or the business school or medical school. No, you could study the humanities in a very, very liberating way, in a very cerebral way, but you should never be in university number one to be an activist. That's not the goal of universities. When I go to a restaurant, it's not because I wanna go bowling, it's because I wanna eat. So when I go to university, it's to go on an intellectual uh, enrichment. Right? I go to Jamaica for the sun. I go to university to grow as, a, as, a, as cerebrally. So just be sure that when you are sending your kids and spending your hard-earned money to, for their tuition, that they are not engaging in these parasitic ideas. Now, I understand that you can't be monitoring every single thing that they study in class, but if they're going to study feminist epistemology of ICE, well, then maybe I'm not going to fund your tuition. If they're going to study neuroscience or Shakespeare or business school or law school, by the way, those things can too be parasitized by all this nonsense, at least give them the tools to be able to protect themselves from all of these dreadful ideas. I remember I had a professor at first year university. I went to the University of Alberta in Edmonton. 
and it was uh, the history of political thought, so political philosophy. And she told us on the first day, you know, there's three other professors that teach the same course. It's a requirement for all political science students. Uh, why don't you go and sit in on each of these teachers and and, and listen, because we have very different philosophies and different worldviews. And, you know, later in, in school, I, I remained in her class, but, I, you know, a couple years later, I realized that like two of the professors that taught the class were, were ardent Marxists, where she was much more of a classicalist. And, and you know, I, I, thought, I thought that's something that a first year student wouldn't really know. But as you, you get more experienced in university, you can kind of see the difference that there are still really good teachers out there and there's still good programs that, uh, that, that do. And also the fact that you can learn so much on, on YouTube and, and these kind of channels. I know you have a very popular uh, YouTube channel, The Sad Truth, where you, you're pretty prolific. You, you post a lot of videos up there uh, commenting on all the different day-to-day -day culture war things. Um, and, and then your book, why, why don't you tell us uh, where we can find your book and the best ways uh, that we can continue to follow you? Thank you. Uh, so yeah, so this, uh, The Parasitic Mind will be out on October 6th. So it really matters if you pre-order it because when, when the book is released, it really helps if there are tons of pre-orders because then it, they go into sales the first day it's released. So if you're planning on buying the book, please pre-order it. You can do it from any, all the portals carry it. Uh, so that's easy to find. Uh, you could follow me on Twitter at Gadsad, G-A-D-S-A-A-D. I have a public Facebook page. And as you said, uh, I have a YouTube channel where I can either just open up the camera and talk about something that's pissing me off, or it could be chats just like the one you and I are having. So I have a whole series, almost 200 chats with really incredible people. Not Most of them are scientists, but all sorts of interesting people, comedians, actors, uh, lawyers, uh, anybody that I think would be fun to have a conversation with, I'm likely to invite. And so if you've just tuned into who I am, you have about 1,133 episodes to catch up on. And so good luck with that. <laughs> well, I definitely recommend that everyone uh, go check that out and definitely pick up the book. Dr. Zai, I noticed it's already a number one bestseller on Amazon. So uh, it shows you know how big of a following that you do have. Uh, thank you for all the work you do. Keep it up. And thank you for joining us on the Turn North Speaker Series. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was really fun.